Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. I'm Dr. Kira Banks. I'm your host. And in this episode, we're going to do what we like to do best here at Raising Equity, understand ourselves and others, and apply our knowledge to how we can interrupt systems of oppression. I have with me tonight my partner in the podcast, partner in life, Aaron Banks, who is a lawyer among many things, as well as the producer of this podcast. And one of the reasons why I think it's important that he comes along with us in this episode is that we're going to dissect some of the some of the high profile police shootings that have been happening. And so his legal expertise is going to help us understand how our criminal justice system and my psychological concepts around how our biases impact our behaviors will hopefully help us think about these dynamics in a new way. So welcome. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thank you for having me once again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that's twice in a week here. Yes. Well, you know, you're really in demand in this pandemic time. <laughs> or is it that I'm what's in the house right now? <laughs> yeah. But I think it's actually a, a really good marriage, well, literally and figuratively, and when figuratively. we think about some of these cases that have come up in the past few weeks. And I don't, I don't know, in terms of your perspective, with Ahmaud Aubrey in particular, there's so many complexities. and. Part of what I like to push us to do at Raising Equity is to not just be flat in our analysis, right? Right, Like to really try to dissect, okay, how could someone come to this conclusion? How could they come to this understanding? What's going on? How is that shaped by our systems? What do you see going on? Um, so you said the word complex. It definitely is complex. It's a socially complex phenomenon, I will say. On the other end, legally, I think we're going to find a uh, little spoiler alert to my end conclusion here is that I think we're going to find that it comes down to a few moments in time and that it's actually fairly simple as far as what legally the courts, prosecutors, defense attorneys will be, consi- will be considering. My perspective, the psychological perspective, mm-hmm. it, feels like, it feels like a tape that we've seen before. Oh, because we have. Right. And Kira, we both know that we've seen this many, many times. There's a pattern for these things. There's the whole sometimes suppression of evidence, uh, what we call a cover-up. There's the uh, discovery portion because of social media, because of video, because of audio, because of media now. We get access to these videotapes, these other pieces of discovery that often will lead to communal outrage or to exposing a fact, a critical fact, or something that seems to turn the case around. At the same time, it seems to hold prosecutors accountable or hold members of the legal community or uh, witnesses, victims, all those, it seems to hold them accountable for what has actually happened. Ahmad Aubrey is no different in this particular case. It's a case where for months we see that a district attorney, prosecuting attorney, whatever you want to call them in Georgia, and I believe Glynn County, Georgia, has sat on evidence that was very critical to the case and to the fact of whether or not uh, was critical determining whether or not the McMichael father and son actually uh, did commit a crime in this particular case. So in in addition to, to them sitting on a critical piece of evidence, we also know that there's a conflict and we know that there were multiple district attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, again, whatever you want to call them, 
that have finally recused themselves. And some of them only recusing themselves now that this information has come to light because there seemed to be some relationship between the father, the McMichael father and, and the district attorney and the investigators that work within the prosecutor's office. And from my understanding, he was an investigator. He worked in that office. So it would be like me investigating a colleague. And so I want to pause exactly. there just to say, or, or not to say, but to highlight that that's often how systems work, right? Like there's in groups and there's out groups. Right. And we end up favoring people who are in our group. In Absolutely. Our in group. And Absolutely. so that's what we saw attempt to happen. It sounds like Ahmaud Aubrey's mom actually filed for one of them to be one of them to recuse, recuse Requesting, themselves. Requesting and you know just reading the facts change to this case every day, as you can imagine. So I believe they may be up to three or four recusals or something like that, right? But I mean, it's it's like any other organization that you work in. Uh, the prosecutor knows it's investigating. Uh, it's it's private and investigators. It's investigators that are that are hired to actually determine facts on the cases that they prosecute. They're going to have some sort of relationship with them. They're, they move in and out the office. They know them by name or they know of them. So, of course, I mean, I, in my opinion, there is obviously some sort of conflict here. It shouldn't have taken the, taken the prosecuting attorney this long to recuse themselves uh, for that and for the fact that uh, because of the relationship and because of all the other factors that we've seen here. Something that I really want to say, though, you know, before we get into this whole legal analysis, I think this can be a very sexy and interesting, interesting thing to do. You know, we like a good court case. We like a trial. We like to see these facts and these videos unfold. And we want, we want to see some sort of, well, I will say we, uh, I will say many of us want justice. We want to see some sort of favorable outcome through this court proceeding. I want people to resist the urge to overvalue this legal out outcome. How can they? That's our legal system. That's what we want. Well, I think, first of all, I think we know from history that we're, when we do this, we often are disappointed. Our hopes are dashed. We're, our hopes can get dashed and we're frustrated. We're so disappointed in the outcome. So I want us to be less surprised about what we know to be true and to focus on other means of justice, uh, other means of coping. And, Matt, and maybe that's something for you to speak on. But what I really want to say, Kara, is that we cannot allow the legal system to tell us our worth. We absolutely cannot do that. No, I mean, we can't. And that's, that is a struggle that we're in, though, because that's, our, that's the system that we have to dictate who gets held accountable or not. Like, I think about Ahmaud Aubrey's mother, right? Like, if I were in that position, if that were my son. Right. Uh, I, there's nothing that's going to bring him back. Nothing that's going to bring my nothing child back. Nothing will bring back. him back. Nothing. No. I would still want justice. Like, it would be hard for me to live in this society that refuses to give my son justice. Like, it makes me think about why, and I understand more deeply, like, why Emmett Till's mother had an open casket. She's like, I know I'm not going to get justice. Right. I know that I will never be able to, in the court of law, see the people who did this to my child held accountable. So you right. will all see. Well, I think you just answered my question like I knew you so brilliantly would. Is what? You talked about how Emmett, Till, Emmett Till's mother chose to handle the situation. She knew that she couldn't rely on this justice system or this injustice system in order to get the outcome of the results that she wanted to. 
So she had her plan. And this really is, this is another Emmett Till situation. This is another Trayvon Martin situation. Luckily here, we have some sort of video evidence that has caused this whole thing to be brought to light where it could have very likely been buried or been covered up. But here we have more information that suggests that Ahmaud Arbery was absolutely murdered in some way or he was stalked down and he was killed. He was hunted down like a dog. I give you that whole qualification because I don't, I just want to say, you know, in getting into some sort of legal analysis or talking about the legal points, I can appreciate it, but I don't want our hope to rest on legal outcome. That's really what I'm trying to say. And maybe I need to make that clear is that we can't pull all, put all of our marbles in that basket. We've been down that road for centuries and it has failed us over and over again. So we have to find other ways, other outlets to find our justice and to, and to keep our joy, if you will. I hear you. And I guess maybe it's the Pollyanna in me that's saying, like, for Mm -hmm. me, the thing that I think we do is that we study the system and we figure out how to disrupt it. Disrupt it, dismantle it. Absolutely. And we figure out how to, how to make sure that if we can't figure out how to shift things, that our children can figure out to shift. Like, to me, that's the whole goal of raising equity. We need to raise kids to understand this. And so when like when we talk to our children about about the reality of the world, it's not to steal their joy. It's not to instill fear in them. No. It's so they understand the lies that get told about Black people. It's because history matters and you have to understand your history if you're going to make changes, if you're going to do something differently. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't mean to be overly pessimis- pessimistic. I just take a more realistic approach to that. And, and again, I just see this whole this whole progression of feelings. And again, along with the cover up and, and the, the evidence coming out and the, the smear campaigns and all those things that happen, part of that often tends to be our hopes being dashed. Uh, so I'm just really saying, think about what, what outcome was really going to give us the justice that we want. I think there is no outcome that will give us that, like you've just said. Ahmad's mother, his, his parents will never again get to hold him. They will never again get to see him. They won't get to see him grow up, accomplish things in his life. So many things have been stolen from that family and stolen from us in general. So granted, we have, you know, whether they were convicted of murder in the first or they went away and they walked off and they they got off scot-free, we're still not going to be made whole by that process. And yet, I think there is some use in analyzing it. Right. So you mentioned... One thing that I've heard people talk about is, oh, well, he was trespassing. Or like, you know, they bring up these past behaviors. Yeah, trespassing. But my point, my point is that last I checked, trespassing doesn't equal being executed right. or being hunted down. And so that's right. That's the recurring theme. And so, and that's why I say, well, it's complex, it's complicated, yet it's not in a way. Because at the end of all this talk and analysis, this man did not deserve to be killed. There was nothing. Give me one thing that you really heard leading up to the point in time when this man dropped to the street that required that he be shot like a dog in the Georgia streets. Nothing you but the dehumanization of black bodies. The dehumanization of black bodies. They're going to rely on this. And the entire case is going to be about self-defense. Make no mistake. We can talk about whether or not he was in, the, in a house whether he was running away, running to, running from, it's going to be all, it's all going to be about self-defense. And it's all going to be about those interactions that happen in those few seconds to where, specifically where he's running around that truck on the right, and whether or not 
that guy feared for his life, whether or not, whether or not he had to use deadly force in order to protect himself. And that's, so, and that's what's going to be about. And as a defense attorney, I can tell you there certainly is an argument. Whether I mean, whether we like to hear it or not, there is going to be an argument for that defense. That defense needs to be heard. Now, the, you know, the defense is going to try to submit that self-defense instruction and get people on that page. And in the process of getting people on that page, or a part of that is actually thinking about whether or not they were trying to affect a citizen's arrest. Well, but before we get to the citizen's arrest, mm-hmm. this whole piece around fearing for their life, to me, that that rings of Darren Wilson saying he feared for his life when Michael Brown pick came. One, towards, right? right. I mean, pick, pick one. It's it's a pattern. Yeah. But that, from the psychological perspective, I think that's important, again, for people to see the pattern mm-hmm. that Black bodies, Black male bodies in particular, that people claim to fear for their life in the presence of Black male bodies. Right. And, and that so their th- presence or their existence alone is sufficient enough to warrant that fear, that deadly fear that they have, that just like is in Michael Brown, coming at him like a monster, like an animal, like a devil of some sort like that. They're almost enlarged and made into these super, super predators of sorts. That's not, yeah. maybe, but that's, that's really how they're, how that's, they're made out to be just by their existence alone. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right. And I, and if people remember even like the LeBron, uh, LeBron James, King Kong time cover. Oh, right. That was mm-hmm. some of the criticism of that cover. That we take this man who is larger than life in terms of his basketball skills. Right. But why do we have to make him larger than life in this ape way holding right. this very delicate white woman? Right. Like that it right. was taking the caricature and the narratives that we have of black masculinity and like layering it on this man who has done a pretty good job of orchestrating his persona. I see what you did there. To not meet that stereotype. <laughs> what? No, I mean, you you went back and like, so I could have thought of Trayvon. I could have thought of Michael Brown. I could have thought of Walter Scott. I could have thought of Tamir Rice. I could have thought of all these people. You took it to something that was much more. Well, I think that, it's important yeah. for people to see that because that's it's like it seeps in, quote unquote, subtly in ways mm-hmm. that are not these dramatic cases that make it okay to show black bodies in that way and make it commonplace that we think about about black masculinity as equaling dangerous and so then when it comes to these cases oh well we can see why they'd be scared right these concepts plug into our idea of raising equity and creating change at, at an earlier stage in people's lives and actually changing the way transforming the way people think and feel or even and people who are in positions of power in the media or in Mm -hmm other arenas right. shaping right what are the narratives that we get because if you're outraged about one more case of police violence against black bodies then where do you have power where can you leverage your privilege to change the narrative about how we're portrayed absolutely yeah so you were going to talk about the citizens arrest oh yeah essentially you know i, I that's going to be one step in the process of proving self defense i would guess is that greg mcmichael i think that was a father said that uh, they had intended to do a citizen's arrest because he thought he actually saw Aubrey uh, before in another entirely separate investigation. So he said that he recognized him in a separate investigation. And so he was going to do a citizen's arrest on this person because he believed he was a person who was burglarizing these homes. So you'll see people use certain keywords all the time. I think in some article I read where the prosecutor was quoted as saying that uh, the McMichael family was in hot pursuit of of Ahmad Arbery. It's a term that is necessary in order to conduct a citizen's arrest. So you think this is all going to hinge on self-defense, basically? 
So yeah, I, th I think it's all going to hinge on self-defense. I think that they're going to use the fact that they were making a citizen's arrest. I think that they're going to say that they were trying to catch somebody who was had just committed, they believed had committed a burglary or some sort of felony crime, and that they had actually went and chased him down and hunted him down the process of that. But I want to remind you again that don't get too caught up in the legal weeds. At the end of the day, you and I both know we don't have to have a law degree. We don't have to conduct some sort of intricate legal analysis to know Ahmad Aubrey did not deserve to be killed that day. Period. Period. And, and that's that that's point. And so in so many cases, that's the point, right? Like Trayvon Martin didn't deserve to die. So many people didn't deserve to die. He did not deserve I, I to die. I was about to say say their names and we can as I wear the say her name shirt, right? Like right. it's important to lift up all the names and yet it's maddening because it's the same story. It's like a broken record. It really is. Tamir Rice didn't deserve to die for being a boy, a little boy right. playing with a toy. Eric Garner didn't deserve to die. Yeah. For, for selling Lucy's. cigarettes. While it's frustrating to see the pattern in the case after case after case after case, I'm, I'm learning and I'm seeing the pattern that each case wakes a few more people up. Absolutely. So we just had a great conversation with uh, a younger white man who, uh, Richard, Richard Demsick. So I was excited about this conversation with Richard because you all might have seen his viral TikTok video. Yeah. He decided to run for a mod uh, with a TV, right? Like he decided, I'm going to do this. And, but what's interesting is that he decided to do it because he saw his friends post on Instagram. Right. Yeah. And so that intrigued me because he had no clue. Right. He had no clue. The story It had been on, on the times. It, in the, I, I guess I'm privileging the times, but it had been everywhere. Right. right. Stories had been all over and he had no clue that this had happened. Yeah. And when he read and watched the video, he wept. Dude was, Dude was out. He ran multiple. Did he run? He ran multiple times. Or was it? He ran once with with and without a shirt. Like so, you actually can go see the video. Maybe yeah. we'll post it. But dude is out there, straight up, just running with the TV on his shoulder. Like, like let's gang do this. Because in his opinion, two plus miles. Right. The only. <laughs> yeah. From in his yeah. opinion, the only difference between him and Ahmad was that one he had a TV, so he looked like a straight up suspect. Right. Right. And two race. And so he's trying to make a point. And I, so when, when I talk to him, he's just learning like what words mean in the social justice movement, yes. what acronyms mean. Just he is up just waking up. And so it, it almost feels like, of course, we don't want any life to be lost, but like it's not in vain if it wakes a few more people up. Right. Oh, but I, I hate you know to even you mean? say it doesn't that. Make me, right. It doesn't make me feel good. But, I, but it, there's a truth to that, though. Definitely. If we're doing mm. our work to leverage our privilege and change stuff, not just if yeah. we're watching black bodies die. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just I, I feel like we were just processing Ahmaud Aubrey and then Breonna Taylor. Yeah. Happens. Mm hmm. And so for folks who, and it's interesting. So when I ran, when I ran for a mod and posted, I hashtag Brianna Taylor's name. Right. And I feel like in the, just the week since that happened, 
We have gotten so much more information about her case. Do you want to tell folks a little right. bit about her case? Because we were actually talking about her case earlier, but then, you know, even in the last two days, I think we've gotten so much more information. So uh, this happened about two months ago. This is on March 13th. Uh, Brianna Taylor, 26-year-old emergency medical technician, was killed when police raided her apartment in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, they conducted this raid at about one o'clock in the morning. There's a lot of things that actually are strange and stink about this case, but uh, the judge gave uh, the SWAT team in Louisville the permission to conduct a no-knock warrant, so they didn't have to knock when they opened. So the warrant, which is supposed to be very specific in nature, it targets uh, sp- specific people, things, uh, it tells very specifically what it's looking for, uh, did not mention either she or her boyfriend, Kenny Walker. So cops bust into their home, mind you, at one o'clock in the morning, bust in um, and riddle the home with bullets. Uh, Kiana is shot at least, we know, at least eight times or more. Mm. She's killed. They shoot everywhere. They, the shots go through to other apartments in the surrounding area. Her boyfriend, Kenny, Kenny is not killed, but Kenny in self-defense has a gun. He lawfully has a, you know, has a license to possess a firearm, uh, shoots back and ends up shooting or uh, potentially harming one officer. Uh, of course, Kiana is killed. She's been killed because of what? And I guess something that to put in perspective here is that this was all, the search warrant was really about narcotics. It was about finding narcotics. They found nothing in that apartment. It turns out who they were looking for didn't even live in that apartment. It was somebody they thought there was some weak, tenuous relationship to Kiana at best, but there was no real evidence that anything that they were looking for was really going to be in that apartment. But mind you, this is about drugs, okay? And because of drugs, because of some pills or some powder or some weed or whatever chemicals they want, they, they want to argue about, they went in and shot up somebody's apartment and killed this black woman. And that makes no sense. And so it makes no sense. It makes no sense. No one deserves to die right. over drugs. Right. Over drugs. As Alan Iverson, Alan Iverson would say, we talking about drugs here. <laughs> we talking about drugs. We killing people over some drugs that they don't even have the wrong people over drugs. So here's the kicker, as they like to say. Kiana's boyfriend now, or I'm sorry, I don't know if it's her boyfriend or her fiance, her partner is now charged with attempted murder. So now he's having to fight an attempted murder case. Mind you, this man, they both got great records, you know, priors, you know, clean, no real reason for all this activity, no reason for this level of force to be asserted on them whatsoever. So now, in addition to losing <laughs> a loved one, he has to fight an attempted murder case. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. And another thing that's interesting here is that the district attorney has recused themselves in the investigation of the police officers. Okay. Because they want to zealously prosecute, <laughs> they want to zealously pr- prosecute the boyfriend. That's, they, they've chosen, they've made a, a conscious choice here who they want to prosecute. So something ain't right. A lot something isn't stinks. right. And why did it take two months to bring this level of attention well, about this case? It, so what that, what that suggests to me in both of these examples is that there's probably a whole lot of cases that if we looked real hard, stink to high heaven. Right. Oh. Absolutely. And 
it takes maybe a loved one screaming really loud or a petition going viral or a Sean King or someone who's high profile, a Brittany Packnett, you know, someone who has a lot of followers, right. a DeRay McKesson. Shout out to Brittany too. Brittany's been really, been really pumping the Brianna's. Oh yeah. Brianna's and I case, think, I, I think one of the reasons why, um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I have the say her name shirt is that oftentimes when we talk about uh, violence against black bodies, we talk about the men only because right. there is this narrative of, of men, black men being dangerous. And that's not, that's not a secret, but that the death of black women is sometimes overlooked because we're focused on men. Right. And so it needs to be pointed out here. Kiana, she was an EMT. She's an essential worker. She's been working all this time during the pandemic. And I can't stress enough. It's just, I'm sorry. It just, it, when I really read, I thought about it. I was like, if you could put yourself one o'clock in the morning, go to sleep. I don't know what I could do to even simulate that. Now, setting an alarm in my, in my room is not going to be enough. Think about how you feel when you wake up at one o'clock in the morning. Like, how much awareness do you have to really know what's going on? Imagine somebody busting with a batter ram through your door. And you think that the whole damn house is under siege. If I think somebody's, if I think I'm under attack and I'm in there with my, with my spouse, my partner, I'm going to shoot back. I'm going to use whatever, at least I'm going to use whatever I have to protect myself. So again, I, again, this whole legal, sorry, I mean, it frustrates me because I just don't understand why the charges are justified here in this particular case, why they have chosen to take it out on him and charge him with it. Attempted murder. Well, I so well. I, I I know why. I know, but you it's know. just this is this is the part where the legal system is so broken. Why have they made a choice to charge him? Why did the prosecuting attorney recuse himself from the investigation of the police officers of the SWAT team and then choose to go down the road of prosecuting an individual who's lost a life and who really wasn't even on the warrant sheet in the first place? So to take a step back and yeah. look at patterns. Sorry. So take a step back and look at patterns. That pattern of protecting our law enforcement is an age-old pattern. Right. It's an age. The, and if we put the two together, protecting our law enforcement and also denigrating and dehumanizing the loss of black life, it makes sense. And I, yeah. I just want people to understand, I'm not saying this as if it should be, we should be okay. We need to be maladjusted. Like King said. We need to be maladjusted to this pattern, right. but we also need to see the pattern for what it is to be able to interrupt it. And so part of me feels like people need to get that so that they can move on beyond the oh, outrage, awe, I'm so surprised. Absolutely. We have seen this before. We will see it again unless we do something different. Mm -hmm. So it, to me, and it, it speaks to that, the way that our criminal justice system protects Law enforcement. Absolutely. It was a rhetorical question, but it was one out of frustration. I know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it, but that's part of why I feel like we have these conversations, like to break it down and even to remind us. Because when, when you said we need to do other things, I'm thinking, my son just got killed by these vigilantes. Like, I, if, for me to not end up in jail myself, like, what else could I do? You, it feels like you feel at a loss. 
So you're talking yeah. about not resting on the legal system. Right. I hear you. And I think it's important that we st- take a step back and analyze things and look at the patterns to see opportunities for how we might interrupt, do something different than rage, although that is totally justifiable. Yeah. Well, I see, like I said, I think I told you before, I see a uh, modern day lynch mob. When I see the McMichaels coming after Ahmaud Arbery, I see a lynch mob. It is. That's all that citizens arrest bullshit is. It is. That's all that SWAT team bullshit is. Rogue. It's just rogue. It is. It's and permission. The, it's, it's permission to be rogue. Yeah. The militarization of our police does not help. Ah. So you have one situation, you have private citizens claiming they have a right to be rogue. And then SWAT team as government agents, actual government agents claiming that same right. Yeah. I would be curious, oh, maybe, uh, about what that warrant was for specifically, like what kind of narcotics, because if it were for marijuana, that would feel. bro. That would feel I don't rough. even want to think about that. I don't, I don't want, yeah. Well, yeah. so just to be clear again, to break it down, the reason I feel that way is if Breonna Taylor died over marijuana, right, which has been legalized in a number of states, it just, it would feel like adding insult to injury. It would feel even worse. Yeah. We talking about narcotics. Uh, yeah, it feels like it's been extra hard being black. So people... Sometimes you're like, I got a mental health. Day. I'm calling in black today, but I can't call in because <laughs> yeah, I'm just know. at my home. I mean, where am I going? Yeah. It's been a tough few weeks. And it just as we were talking about how sometimes black women's death gets less attention, mm-hmm. black trans women, trans women of color get even gets less attention. Even less. And Nina Pop is a black trans woman uh, who was killed in Sykeston, Missouri. And we know so little about her death. Right. I, the only thing I know is that she was found stabbed to death May 3rd, 2020, 28 years old, Missouri. And that she was one of five trans people killed in the last month alone. Yeah. So just, again, thinking about like the intersections of identity, uh, being black, being a woman, trans. And being clear that like, that's the whole, when people talk about intersectionality, sometimes people use that incorrectly. Mm -hmm. They think about, oh, how our identities intersect. Well, really it was created to talk about who gets lost at the margins, right? And so Nina Pop, Mm. as a black trans woman, she gets lost in the margins. Okay. So, I mean, I can't believe I'm about to tell you about a case, but the GE case. There was a which GE case? Oh, really? Which GE case? <laughs> I actually don't know. I mean, what, yeah, I don't know how to identify other than five <laughs> black women brought a lawsuit against GE. Mm-hmm. It was a labor. It was for labor discrimination. They said we're discriminated against because we're women, and the court said no, you're not because GE hires women, white women. Right. And then they said, well, we're discriminated against because we're black. Yeah. And the court said no, you're not because GE hires black. black. Men. Right. And margins. Right. And so then their lawyer was like, exactly. (laughs) That's why we're saying they should be seen as black women. Yeah. And the court said no, because that gives them two bites of the apple, which is a legal concept, I understand. Ask right. Ask a black black woman if they get two bites of the apple. Right. Well, (laughs) I I am one. (laughs) I'm sorry. Do you want to ask me? (laughs) 
And so that is where intersectionality comes from. Not just, oh, the way our identities intersect, but like literally who gets lost in the margins. And black trans women get lost in the margins. For sure. I was just talking to someone. Yeah, I've heard of that case, by the way. I I assumed you had. Our oldest was doing a paper on Stonewall. Mm -hmm. So the the flashpoint moment in the gay rights movement, Right. right? And I asked him, he knew some details. And I said, well, did you learn about Martha P. Johnson? And he said, no. But we know that Martha P. Johnson and other black trans women were at the forefront of Stonewall. But we don't hear about their stories. I know that from you and from, I think, Netflix. Well, there was a Netflix series. And yeah. there was all this drama about that series. That, like really? someone, that, that, a, that a person of color, I think a black woman even started. And then someone, I think a white man might have stolen the idea. Imagine that. Maybe I, maybe, I don't Never that. Don't quote me on that. Right. But okay. there was some controversy about that series and who, the documentary, and like who started the documentary. Right. There's... A lot of drama behind a lot of stories. That's for sure. But what I hope, what I hope we still work to do is tell complex stories and not flatten them. And that's what, when I was talking to uh, Richard Demsick, the white Mm -hmm. man who ran with the TV, that was something that was running through my mind of like, he's waking up and, and on fire and trying to figure out what to do. And I, I was hopeful that the stories that we're telling now, the analyses that we're doing now Mm -hmm. are more nuanced than they have been in the past. Just more thorough, more More thorough. Like even just the fact that like we can have a podcast and sit here and talk about this and break this down, that we don't have to wait 20 years for someone to, to talk about and analyze and connect some dots. That was such a good point that you, I remember that conversation where you told that we, that hopefully we won't have to wait. 20 years to get the truth. We won't have to wait 20 years to have that revelation to realize that we had marginalized, we had oppressed some group of people. Maybe we can actually catch ourselves in the act of doing something or stop it altogether. Take history into account and just short circuit that sucker altogether, you know? Yeah, but it requires that we're honest with ourselves and each other. That was a really good thing you'd said too. Well, so that actually crossroads anti-racism training. I learned that there, the idea of being a critical lover, Mm -hmm. right? So that a critic is the one who doesn't have anything good to say. And the lover is the one that, you know, the organization or the country can do no wrong. Pollyanna sorts, yeah. But you want to be a critical lover. Right. You love it enough to critique it to make it better. Oh, I get so much, so many good nuggets from you. You're being sarcastic. I'm not being sorry. I'm being 100% dead ass serious. Like I get <laughs> we so. A, many... We need to put a poll. Did he sound sarcastic? Right. No, I'm. I'm so serious. Okay. I mean, all these things I'm learning from you. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate learning from you. Thank right. you for bringing your legal mind to the podcast. If folks want to follow you and hear more of your musings, where can they find you? Oh, sure. You can find me on where am I? Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Aaron W. Banks. Uh, photos on Instagram, uh, random thoughts on Twitter. You can also go to AaronBanks.com. Hire me, book me if you'd like to for photography. I do events. I photograph human beings. I, of course, follow our awesome podcast that you're hearing right now in the moment, Raising Equity, on all the major podcast platforms, RaisingEquity.org. Well, thanks for doing that for me. Yeah. Oh, I guess I just did it for you. You did. Yeah. And thank you all. I hope that Our thoughts from the psychological and legal perspective 
uh, helped you think through the nuances of the cases that we're hearing, but also helped you see the patterns, see what's not new, and see how maybe we might interrupt things. As thoughts occur to you, please share them with us because we're all trying to figure this thing out. We don't have all the answers, but together we can raise equity. Thanks for joining us on Raising Equity. 